You're listening to a podcast from Columbia Christian Fellowship in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Our services are weekly at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. That song is one of those songs that will be in your head for a week. Those choruses, you just keep singing them over and over. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You're going to never stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 23. Worship and the Word, what a powerful combination. Worship prepares our hearts to receive God's Word. Last week, Steve was mentioning the sermon last week. Paul was about to embark on a a one-and-a-half-year teaching ministry in Corinth. He was finally going to stay put for a while. For a change, he had found favor with the governing authorities. He had gotten a word from the Lord that many people were going to come to know Jesus in Corinth. And as an additional encouragement, he was told that no one would be able to attack and harm him there. And I believe that's a word for our church right here. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. God is with this church. I have many people in this Columbia area. No one's going to attack you and harm you here because I have a work for you to do. So Paul was able for the first time in these missionary journeys to really enter into teaching the believers without having to constantly be looking over his back, looking over his shoulder for fear of his life. That was last week. This week, the year and a half is over, and Paul is again on the move. Jess, if you'll come and read, and we'll stand We'll stand to acknowledge Jess, but we'll stand especially to honor God's word together. 19. Or 18. Are you sure? Yes. Eight, so it's this one here. 18. 18 to 23. Okay. It's Acts 18, 18 to 23. Check, Thank you. Check, check. Okay, sorry. Did I have you all in a panic? <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm like, wait a minute. Okay. Yes, you're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centria. There he shaved his head according to the Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. They stopped first at the port of <laughs> F. What's that one? I actually don't have it in front of me. Ephesus. Thank you. Ephesus. (laughs) Where Paul left the others behind. While he was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he declined. As he left, however, he said, I will come back later, God willing. Then he set sail for Ephesus. The next step step was at the port of Caesarea. From there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and then went back to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through um, Galatia and 
Fergia. Fergia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. Thanks, Jess. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Didn't help that I had you reading the wrong verses, did it? Thank you. You may be seated. Today's title, Discipleship 101. Again, as in the past several weeks, two segments to this message. We'll give the settings, the setting and the details of the passage, and then we're going to do some teaching on discipleship with some application. Our text today, are you with me? I'm not losing you already, am I? Our text today begins with Paul finishing up his year and a half teaching ministry, and he's now departing Corinth. We'll check out our map. If you see, it starts at number 18, if you can see it that, if you can see it that clearly. Yeah, it's pretty clear. He left Corinth, and he traveled to Centria. Centria is just actually a harbor. It's a harbor port of Corinth. He's not really that far out of Corinth. He's just at the harbor. Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla went with him. And there he had his hair cut due to some sort of a vow that he has taken. And I would love to tell you what that was all about, why that's in there, what the vow was, but it doesn't really say. It just says that he got his hair cut to fulfill, fulfill a vow that he's taken. There are many theories about what that is, but all we could really do is speculate. So it doesn't say, we're going to leave it at that. The fact is, there he got his hair cut to fulfill a vow that he had taken. Then he boarded a ship for Ephesus. In Ephesus, when he, re, when he gets to Ephesus, he hits the synagogue. That's his pattern. That was his custom. And he begins reasoning with the Jews over the Messiah. It's like he had to at least try. Remember last time he left the Jews and he said, I'm now going to the Gentiles. He gets to Ephesus and he's right back in the synagogue with the Jews. It's like he has to at least try to tell his own people group about Jesus. And it doesn't say what the response was here. It doesn't say whether any of these Jewish people came to faith in Christ. But they didn't run him out of town for a change. In fact, it says they wanted him to stay longer and speak more. That's unusual. Paul assures them he will come back to them if the Lord willing, but he's on another mission. Now, history has it at this point, you know, Aquila and Priscilla went with him. They stayed in Ephesus. They opened up their tent-making or leather-working business, and they helped to get that church we know now as the Ephesian church. They helped to get that church up and running. I think they stayed there five years ministering in the church in Ephesus. But Paul leaves them, and he goes it alone again. He's off by ship to Caesarea. Caesarea is just north of Jerusalem. So, you know, we were up in Turkey and Greece and Asia Minor, and now we're, Ephesus is still up there, but he's on his way back down to Jerusalem. He's back in Israel, and he's not there very long. He visits the church in Jerusalem. He greets them, tells some of his story, and he's off again. He's on his way to Antioch of Syria. Does that ring a bell? That's where it all began. This is where Paul was originally commissioned and sent out by the Holy Spirit and the church in Acts 13. Set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for a special mission that I have for them. Church, they prayed, they fasted, they worshiped, they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them off. He doesn't stay at Antioch, Syria long. 
He moves on to the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. Those are regions in modern-day Turkey, not some far-off planet, not some fantasy land, but the Turkey as we know it today. He went from one to the other of the churches that he and his companions had started in that area during the missionary trip, Galatia, Phrygia. That's all the red line on the, on the map if you can follow that. Just a quick side note. This area of the world, Turkey, Asia Minor, was a hotbed of Christianity in Paul's day. When he, his companion, when he and his companions were doing ministry there, it was the hotbed of Christianity in the world, rivaling that of Jerusalem down in the south. Today, we send missionaries to Turkey and to Asia Minor because 99% of the population is Muslim. Islam is the predominant religion. Where once Christianity had its beginnings and its roots and it thrived, 1% of the population reports to be Christian. And when you have 1% of the population reporting to be Christian, it's probably less than that because there are a lot of nominal professing believers who really are not born-again Christians. So you can see how Satan over the centuries has gotten in there and stolen that ground back from the church. Can't ever take it for granted. Ground gained can never be taken for granted. Ground gained must be sustained. Do you hear me? Ground gained by the church must be sustained by the church. Satan is relentless. He never gives up. But our God is more relentless and more powerful. So that's the history and that's the setting of our passage today. I want to pick it up in verse 23, and that's going to take us to our main point. Acts 18, 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul went back through Galatia and Phrygia, visiting and strengthening all the believers. Pay attention to the bold type. Visiting, okay, but strengthening all the believers. Of importance, of importance to us today. And what I believe God wants to emphasize to us, to the church, but particularly to this church. And when you're in that wave of the Holy Spirit, you almost always hear reports afterwards that God was speaking the same thing to many churches. But we just know for sure what he's speaking right now to our church. The importance is found in that phrase, strengthening all the believers. The importance is found in what Paul was doing as he greeted and visited the churches. The end of verse 23 is in bold type for a reason. Paul's intention on this trip up through Galatia and Phrygia was to strengthen the recent converts to Christianity. These new believers that had come to Christ through their previous missionary journeys in cities like Antioch, Pisidia, Lystra, Iconium, Derba, Derby, etc. You remember those? It's not that long ago. He's going back through that area to strengthen the believers, strengthen the churches. He was not able to do that on his first trip 
Because opposition would always run him out of town. Opposition would always arrive, arise to, opposition would always arise and force Paul and his companions into some kind of adverse situation, oftentimes running them out of town. But strengthening the believers is so important and it's so needed. And it's so neglected in the church today. What does it even mean? What does it entail? How do you do it? What what does it look like to strengthen the believers, for the church to be strengthening the believers? In today's church language, we would probably call this what? Discipleship. It's a word that has a lot of like mystery around it, I'm afraid, but it's still the word we've used for, for, forever, and it's a good, it's a good word. Make, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Disciples are learners. Disciples are students. They, they follow somebody who's teaching them. They embrace the teaching, and they become like the teacher. That's why Jesus said, go make disciples of me. Not me, Hub Smith, of him. I don't want any disciples of Hub Smith. I want to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ followers of him. Now, Paul did say, be followers of me as I am a follower of him. Hopefully, we can all say that. Hopefully, our Christian lives have come to the point where we can say, follow me as I follow him. This is a very noticeable ministry of Paul. If he wasn't actually able to do it, he was at least attempting to do it. On his way out to the unchurched regions, his primary motivation was evangelistic. You can't disciple someone until you bring them to know the Lord. Otherwise, it's falling on deaf ears. There's a a veil across their eyes. You You wonder why those people you've talked to about the Lord don't get it. Well, it is on them. It is a willful choice. But there's also this other factor where Satan has placed a veil, a lack of understanding on unbelievers uh, over their eyes and on their lives. They actually can't understand until they believe. But between the Holy Spirit's conviction and our powerful gospel message, that's what brings them to believe. Then they can understand. Then once they understand, that's not the end of the journey. Man, that's only the beginning of the journey. Now they have to be cared for. They have to be strengthened. Discipleship 101, but very, very important in these days ahead. So on the way out, on those missionary journeys, their priority by necessity was evangelistic. We need to help these people come to know Jesus. They were telling people all about Jesus, people who didn't know Jesus, all about Jesus, so they would come to know Jesus. That was their first priority. On his way back through, you always notice this change in the motivation when they're going back through places where they've already ministered, places where they've already formed churches, the primary motivation was discipleship, or as it says here, strengthening all the believers. Following me? Well, let's define this word strengthening. It's it's rather simple. It means to make strong. That's self-explanatory. To make firm, to make solid, to ground securely. Now, Steve mentioned that these guys have a garden down, down here, and I have a garden, and you're growing tomatoes, right? You guys are growing tomatoes. I'm growing tomatoes. 
And when you grow tomatoes, you have to put tomato stakes in to uphold the plant, right? Did you guys stake your tomatoes? Okay. You need to make sure that those things, those stakes are good and strong. They need to be firmly secured in the ground. They got to be solid. They can't be loose and wiggling around. They need to be unmovable. They need to be unshakable. Otherwise, under the weight of the tomato plant, and they can get heavy, depending on which variety you're growing, under the weight of the tomato plant, or if we have a gusty storm that hits, the stake and the plant will both be blown over and possibly destroyed. All that work, those tomatoes, these beautiful, luscious tomatoes, destroyed because we didn't have a good, strong stake in the ground. Can you see the parallel? You see where we're headed with this? New believers need to be strengthened in the faith and the Christian life. New believers need to be strengthened in faith and the Christian life. If not strengthened, if not made strong, if not firm, solid, securely grounded in the faith, if they're not unmovable, if they're not unshakable, a new believer will be susceptible to the vicious attacks of the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Satan roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. New Christians are one of his favorite preys, looking for an opening to get into their lives. And there are plenty of openings in a new Christian's life. And especially if someone doesn't come around them, if, if someone or ones, if the church doesn't come around them. That's why we lost so many souls in the Jesus freak movement. So there's an estimate that millions of hippies and beatniks were getting saved, but the church wouldn't receive them, and the church didn't disciple them. So they were lost to the church, and they went out and got into all kinds of different things. We're on the verge of a second move of God, I believe, in, in the United States that's going to rival that. We can't drop the ball this time. Discipleship 101. They're going to come in and they're going to look different. And they're going to, at that time, believe different. Because you don't change everything you believe when you get saved. You carry a lot of baggage with you sometimes for a long time. They need someone to come around them and strengthen them and teach them and protect them and care for them and meet their needs. Am I right? The world, the flesh, and the devil will bring all sorts of deception into new believers' lives. Sometimes you scratch your head because we know now, because we've been discipled, and they come in with these theories or what they're starting to believe, and you're like, what? Where in the world did they even get that? And we can get mad at them, but we've got to be really careful about that. Aren't you glad they didn't get mad at you? <laughs> New believers do not know how to withstand, and they do not know how to respond correctly to these attacks of the enemy, apart from being discipled. The ministry work of discipleship through the Apostle Paul and his companions is mentioned three times. It's, it's funny because this word strengthened, there are other word derivatives very similar meaning. But this word strengthened is only used, I think, three or four times in the entire New Testament. And every time it refers to this ministry of the Apostle Paul and or his companions. It was their habitual practice whenever they were able to do it. If they weren't run out of town or thrown in jail. Just three quick passages where you find this. 
After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. New believers come in thinking that that's the end of all their troubles once they accepted Christ. I did that. What a rude awakening. Reminding them that, hey, it's not going to be a path of roses now. You like it or not, entered a battle and there's an enemy. But you know Christ and that makes it all worthwhile. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening them. Then he, Paul, traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening, strengthening the churches there. Listen, this is very, very important for the church today. Paul never led people into a relationship with Christ and then forgot about them or left them on their own. Think about that. Paul never led anyone into a relationship with Christ, then forgot about them or left them on their own. Even when he was brutally beaten and run out of town, he would try to return to them. They stoned him. They dragged him outside the city. They left him for dead. He picked himself up and went back into the cities to find the believers. If he couldn't actually get back into the city, at least he would write to them. That's what the epistles are all about. Did you ever wonder what those letters are? Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. All those epistles are actually the letters of Paul to individuals and churches from his missionary journey. He's writing them to strengthen them, and we benefit from it today. Because God made it the timeless word of God. It was good for them, and it's good for us. As I said early on, today we would call this discipleship. That's become the name of the ministry in most churches. This ends actually segment one. I want to begin segment two, which is now some teaching on discipleship, followed by a very brief but sim- simple brief exp- uh, application. Components of discipleship. What's it look like? What's it entail? What's it consist of? So biblical New Testament con- components of discipleship. This is not an exhaustive or uh, exclusive list. There's, there's more, but this is a good place to start. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, which is communion, and to prayer. So here's the setting of Acts 2. 3,000 souls just got saved off of Peter's Pentecost sermon. 3,000 new believers. You know, we've said this before. What would we do if 3,000 new believers came into this church. Yeah, praise God. What a great challenge to have, but a challenge nonetheless. Well, that's the situation they found themselves in. They went into that upper room scared and timid of the authorities. They saw that they crucified Jesus. Now they're waiting. They kind of knew, but they didn't really know what's coming next. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're filled with boldness. They're filled with the Spirit. They're filled with boldness. And they go out, and without even knowing really what they're doing, they start speaking in tongues, and they start preaching to the crowds. 
And to their amazement, 3,000 people accept the message and get saved. Now what do you do? Now you got 3,000 people that you have to care for. And you have no clue how to do it. This was the first New Testament revival. The first New Testament church was forming in Jerusalem. There was no church before. They had no precedent. They had no model to follow after. All Jesus said was go and make disciples, but he didn't give a lot of explanation of what that would look like. Are you interested in this? So now what do you do with them? How in the world do you disciple them? How do you make them strong? How do you secure them? How do you securely ground them in their faith? How do you make them unmovable and unshakable? Because the disciples had had some experience with Jesus of the enemy. So some lessons learned from the example of the early church. Four primary components, not exclusive, not exhaustive list, but four primary components around which they orchestrated their discipleship ministry, their strengthening of these believers. The apostles' teaching, which is the word, the fellowship, not, not fellowship, the fellowship, which is the church, sharing meals, that's what we would call fellowship, sharing meals, caring for one another, meeting needs, hospitality, greatly lacking in the church today, and prayer. These were the four components around which the early church orchestrated their discipleship ministry. Time won't allow us to get into these very much in depth, but maybe a scripture or two or three and a comment or two, and then we'll move on to application. So first is the word, and it should be first. Like newborn babies, you should long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may be nurtured and you may grow. In respect to salvation. New believers must be instructed from the word. If you're going to take a new believer under your wing. Don't give them your opinion on things. Don't lead them out into peripherals. Give them the word. That's what they need. You shall know the truth which is the word. And the truth will set you free. Your opinion never sets anybody free. Even if it's a great opinion. But your opinion never sets anybody free. But the truth of God's word does. New believers need to be instructed in the Word in order to grow strong. It's of utmost importance. And there's so many verses we could use to support that. Each one of these four components could be a sermon in its own. We're not going to do that. Don't worry. But I do have two more verses on the Word. I had to. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? So how do you grow in your faith? You need to read the Word. You need to be instructed in the Word. You need to be eating that thing. And letting it become a part of you. Growing in faith comes through the word of God. It's so vitally important. And not just for new believers, but for us as well. It's this important. Here's a question for you. Tell me one thing that you know about the Lord that you didn't learn from the word. One thing that you know from the Lord that you learned from another, about the Lord that you learned from another source. The silence is deafening. The word is that important. There's no other source where God reveals himself except through the word. You may have learned it from a sermon, from a person, from a book, 
from a pastor or a teacher. You may have learned it from them, but where did it come from? It comes from the Word. There's no knowledge of God that can be known by man outside of the Word of God. Ultimately, any truth about God or spiritual matters comes from the Word. Last verse on the Word. Jesus told him, the Scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The thought here from Jesus himself is that the Word of God is as important to your spiritual life as food is to your physical life. I don't know how people think they can do it, but... You cannot sustain a spiritual life apart from the word. It shrivels up and it dies. And oftentimes we're deceived into thinking it's not dead, but it's dead. Because the word feeds your spiritual life. So then the new believers must be taught the importance of the word of God. Scripture, the Bible. Second component. Let us not neglect... uh, Ouch, already. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir. Let us not neglect our meeting together. That is going to church. I don't like that expression because we are the church. We go to the building in which the church is housed. But it's very clear in Scripture. Believers go to church. Believers gather with one another. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. So even back then, already people were finding reasons not to gather with the church. But encourage one another. As, was it you, Steve, that was talking about how you were encouraged by coming in here today? Or Sonny? Or maybe both of you. How just coming in here and being around your brothers and sisters is such an uplift. You run into a fellow believer out on the street. What an uplift. Encourage one another by gathering together, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So listen, folks, I'm just the messenger. If you have a beef with this, your beef is with the Lord. Take it to him. See what he thinks about your excuses for not coming or not going. The scriptural injunction, whether we like it or not, is that going to church is not optional. Believers are to gather together regularly, regularly, with one another. We gather once a week, and then we have stuff scattered through the week, which is great. They gathered every day. In the temple courts and in their houses, they gathered every day. The church is the vehicle through which God works on earth. So even if you have to do it out of duty, do it because that's where God's going to be moving, and you want to be a part of that. Even if you don't like your brothers and sisters, at least come to see what God is doing. But if you don't like your brothers and sisters, you're in trouble. If you've been reading 1 John, this is how we know that we know the Lord. We love the church. We love the people of the church. Oh, man, there's some ouches in there. There's some room for growth. And the emphasis here, let us not neglect our meeting together. We try and skirt around that, but I'm telling you, it's so clear. The emphasis here is on gathering. It's on gathering. It's not enough to watch a preacher on TV. It's not enough to just listen to the podcast. 
You miss too much of the other stuff that God has for believers who are gathering together. That's why Satan had such a diabolical attack with this COVID. It's unheard of that the churches would be shut down. And we thought it was just, you know, an earthly matter. That wasn't an earthly matter. Satan had his paws all over that thing. Keep the church from gathering because that's where the church's strength is. Gathering together, not listening to podcasts or TV evangelists. Listen to this verse. God's purpose in all this was to use the church, the church, us gathered, to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and unseen authorities in heavenly places. What? How does God deal with the unseen rulers, the demonic authorities in heavenly realms? How does he deal with them? Through his church, gathered. It's a formidable force, a powerful agent against the kingdom of darkness. And it's the only one. Government has a purpose. Education has a purpose. Science, medicine, they all have purposes. But there's only one institution on earth or organization that can stand against the kingdom of darkness. And it's the church. And it's the only one. It's the role God gave the church. God works through his church gathered on earth to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. Believers gathering regularly is a powerful force against the kingdom of darkness and evil. New believers must be taught the importance of getting connected, involved, and committed to a local body of Christ. I'm here to tell you whether you like it or not and whether you're going to like me or not, it's not optional. And again, and this is where people really, it breaks down. They can give me any excuse they want. They can give you any excuse they want. The thing is, tell them to go talk to Jesus and give him that excuse and then let me know what he says about your excuse. And if he says you're exonerated, you don't have to go to church, well, who am I to argue with that? The only problem is, goes against his word. There are no long rangers. There are no effective lone rangers in God's kingdom. We saw last week what happened to Paul when he tried to go it alone. We almost lost one of the greatest servants of God that we have. Third component, caring for one another. There's so many ways to say it. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We have come up with so many things that we think will prove to the world we're his disciples. Some good, some bad, some indifferent. We run homeless shelters and we run food banks and and we run clothing banks and we do all these things to show the world that we're Christ's disciples. We speak in tongues and we prophesy and, and we hopefully are involved in signs, wonders, and miracles to show the world that we're Christ's disciples. But what does the Bible say? The one thing clearly shows the world that we're his disciples. When we love one another, it's not even when we love them. Yes, of course, we're we're called to love them. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what shows the world that we're his disciples is when they see the way we love one another and the way we care for one another. And they say, man, I don't experience this in the world. I want to be a part of that. And they're drawn to Christ. Does that make sense to you? makes sense to me. 
you'd say, where's the love? Where's the love? You look, you look out over the landscape, the church landscape in America, and churches are attacking churches, and ministries are attacking ministries. What are they doing? So what if you don't really agree with that church or that ministry? Scripture says, to the Lord they'll rise or fall. It's not your job to judge them. It's your job to make sure you're doing what you're called to do. We got enough to worry about just loving one another in here and displaying that love of Christ for one another. Right, guys? Yeah. Do you feel the love over in Monos when you're over there? Yeah. Love for one another? Well, that's because you have to bring it. That's your assignment. You got to bring the love. There's enough of you here. You can take them on. New believers don't come out of an environment where love was prioritized or emphasized. At least not the unconditional self-sacrificing kind of love that God has for his people and that we're to have for one another. Did you catch those two words? Unconditional. doesn't mean we compromise truth. That's always the argument. Yeah, but I got to draw the line. No, we don't compromise truth and we know that, but we still love unconditionally and sacrificially. That's God's love for us. That's to be our love for one another. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. This is that deep, the Greek word koinonia, love, that seeks the welfare and serves the interests of others more so than ourselves. It's the selfless agape love of God operating in and through believers towards one another and, of course, towards others. It manifests in serving one another. It manifests in blessing one another. It manifests in sharing with one another. Especially, they use the expression share meals with one another to encompass all types of hospitality and meeting of needs and caring for one another in the church. You know, one of the greatest testimonies of the early church was there were no needy persons among them because they met each other's needs. They, they didn't actually go on government programs back in that day. They had the church. You say, well, man, we, there's no way we could afford to meet all those needs. But wait a minute. What if 3,000 souls were coming here and getting saved and learning this and bringing all their resources with them? Well, we might be in a position to start helping more and meeting more needs. That's why we have to tithe, but that's a whole other message. That's not in this message. But new believers do need to be taught to tithe for their sakes. They really want to receive the blessing of the Lord. New believers must be taught the importance of loving one another right from the beginning. The importance of the word, the importance of loving one another. I feel like I missed something here. How many components have we had? Okay, good. Then we're on the fourth one. Thank you. The fourth component is prayer. Do we even need to say anything about that? We'll get Justin up here. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. That's a classic statement on prayer from Jesus himself. Perseverance in prayer. Always pray. Never give up. Uh, stick to A weakness of mine. I'm working on that. 
Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers. Rather clear admonition, admonition on the priority and the practice of prayer in a believer's life. Needs no further explanation. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power, produces wonderful results. Again, clear enough, prayer allows believers the opportunity to impact our culture, the world around us, other individuals, families, society. God gave us prayer so that we could have a great impact in our world. New believers must be taught the importance of prayer. Right from the beginning. So let's sum this up. New believers need to be strengthened in the Christian life. We got that general principle. Paul was strengthening them. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Here's how the early church at least began their discipleship ministry. They taught the importance of the word. They taught the importance of the church. They taught the importance of loving one another. And they taught the importance of prayer. It says the church devoted themselves to those four things. Fully committed, wholehearted commitment. The church, the the apostles were leading this. The church was committed to it. And you know what that church was like in the early days. This is neither exhaustive or exclusive, but it's certainly a a good start. So for application, why this message on discipleship? I shouldn't have the answer up there. I should have asked you. But why this message on discipleship now? Answer, because 100,000 new believers will shortly need to be discipled. Not an amen in the house. So I say it again. That, That was a hint. Question, why this message on discipleship? Answer, because 100,000 new believers will shortly need to be discipled. We better have an idea of what we're doing, right? Okay, we stand with me, please? Ron, if you'll come and pray. Sonny, bring the band up. All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer. There's so much to pray about and so much we heard about, but what, what I, I noticed today is what, uh, Jamie was up here, Steve was up here, and, and, and the message is love, love. And what's ironic is, no, maybe it's not, it's God's plan. We started reading 1 John, John 2 and 3. We're going to start uh, John this week. That's all about love. So God, God is trying to teach us something here today. So Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we just praise you and thank you for what you're doing in, in our church, in, in this church family. And Lord, it's so exciting. You're teaching us love. You're teaching us overwhelming in love. And love, and it says, if we don't love another believer, then we hate God. So we don't want that. So we want to lift this up to you to change our hearts, to love not only our fellow believers, but the new people coming in. You know, all the you know, ten thousand, ten hundred thousand coming in, Lord. And Lord, you know, we we got to show us the love. One thing this church always did do was show love. And we just want to praise you for that and, and just continue, continue to 
pour that into this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just fill us up. I know, you know, in the message it says, you know, we got to study the word yes. and study the word yes. and study the word and how Jesus defeated the, the devil in the wilderness with the word. And, Lord, that's so important. So, Lord, we just lift that up. Yes, you know, meeting together. We need each other. You know, iron sharpens iron. And, you know, and, and with the text message, you know, the text and email announcement, Lord, if we don't know if something's going on in your life, how do we pray for you? So, uh, we, uh, Lord, I just encourage people to get signed up for that so yes. we can be there, put our arms around them, and carry them through their burdens. So, Heavenly Father, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. I mean, when Hubble was... Uh, you know, saying about new believers, new believers. I said, heck, man, old believers need a lot of that too, Father. And, Lord, we just want to look to you and, and, and just ask you, Father, to rise up new leaders for small groups, new leaders for more prayer. I, I, Father, you blessed us with this big storehouse. We got many, many rooms that can be, you know, used for these different uh, activities. And, Lord, we just want to praise you for that, Lord. Yes, Lord. And, Lord, you, we could have ten prayer groups going on in one night or one morning. Yes, I mean, you gave us this big building. And, Lord, I just ask you to rise up the people. Yes. Rise us up and, 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 you know, get us ready for the onslaught of this next revival coming in. Yes. You know, that, you know, there's no programs going to do it. There's no, you know, you know scheme, things that are going to do it. The power of the Holy Spirit yes. is going to be released the moment we need it. And, Lord, we need the word. We need your word that, you know, when this power of the Holy Spirit comes blowing through on us like it did in Pentecost, we're, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. And so we want to lift this all up to you. And, Lord, as we leave here today, you know, that we take this word with us. Yes, Lord. That we love our fellow neighbor, not only fellow believers, but our neighbors and, and our family. And whoever we come across, Lord. So, Lord, we just want to lift this up. We just want to thank you. And I just ask you, Father, to bring a, bring the power of the Holy Spirit upon us right now. And, Lord, let it be in the name of Jesus. And let it, let's lift up the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. We shout you out to you, Jesus. Jesus, yes, thank you for thank what you've done for us. Thank and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our weekly message. To connect with us, visit our website at blesscolumbia.org.